Well, good morning. Oh, come on now. Good morning. There we go. I got I to gotta get, gotta get the momentum to push me in there, right? Um, so my name is Ryan Matherly. Uh, I don't know why I needed my notes to tell you that, but my name is Ryan Matherly. I am the youth and college pastor here at PVN. Uh, our fearless leader, Pastor Mac McCurry, uh, his oldest daughter got married yesterday. So they're spending today with, uh, with, in-laws, with, with new in-laws uh, and, and extended family and getting some much-needed rest. So uh, please be praying for them. But uh, as Bob said earlier, uh, we're going to be spending some time together uh, in God's Word this morning. Uh, so turn to the book of Job, if you don't mind. Uh, nice little pick-me-up to start your year. Turn to the book of Job. Uh, so, so if you're looking, Job is, is in the middle section of the Old Testament. So it's kind of in the middle of the Old Testament. In a section of the Bible called the Wisdom Literature. Um, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. That comprises what we call the wisdom literature. And, and this, knowing that, knowing that Job is in the wisdom literature already helps us understand the book of Job better because here's why. The, the point of the wisdom literature is kind of to show us two things, okay? The point of the wisdom literature is, one, to show us clearly how the world is. All its good, all its bad, all its beauty, all its brokenness. The wisdom literature helps show us this about the world, but it also shows us how to live in that broken, beautiful world, okay? How to live in this broken, complex world in a way that glorifies God. And he, here's where it gets really important. When I say it shows us how to live in the world, I don't really mean how to behave, or, or I don't just mean how to behave. Cut and dry, here's what you do, here's what you don't do. See, the wisdom literature does have some cut and dry in it, but it's really more about the gray areas of life. What happens when questions go unanswered? What happens when things don't go according to plan? And here's why this is important. Maybe you've heard uh, of a Monday morning quarterback, right? There are going to be a lot of those Tuesday morning, okay? Maybe you've heard of a Monday morning quarterback or, or, or from kind of our world, what, what we call it is, is an armchair pastor, okay? A Monday morning quarterback is usually a fan sitting on the outside, and you know they have all the answers the day after the game, right? They know exactly what you should have done. Oh, and, and, and it's very cut and dry. Like, it's so simple. Oh, well, all the team had to do was this, this, and this, and then the game would have gone this way. And in the same way, kind of an armchair pastor might say, well, it's easy to look at the Bible like this. Uh, clearly, life works this way. All you have to do is this, this, and this, follow these certain commandments, and then life's going to go this way. It's very cut and dry. But what happens when life is not cut and dry? What happens when things don't get better? Or when our plans change and we weren't the ones who changed them and there's really no sign that they're gonna change back anytime soon? Let me give you an example of this. You know the Bible says, cut and dry, and it's good, you know the Bible says that married people are not to commit adultery. It's just something you don't do, right? And that's a good rule, that's a good law in the Bible, cut and dry, and that's good. But there are so many married couples who are not committing adultery 
who are doing what they're supposed to do, and their marriage is still falling apart. So what do you do now? You've behaved, cut and dry, you've done it, and it's still not working. What do we do now? That's where the wisdom literature comes in. That's what the whole Bible is for, really, but the wisdom literature in particular. And so we're already starting to see that Job's not just about what you do in suffering. Job is about how complicated and messy that process is. And that in of itself can give us some hope, but we'll talk about that in a second. You know, you and I both know that life is so much more complicated than, well, just apply Rule 38 to this situation and then it'll all work out. See, that's part of the problem with Job's friends, by the way, so-called friends. They think it's just going to work out super. All you got to do, Job, is this and this will all go away. They're based on this system, this cut and dry system, and life doesn't work like that. Life is more complicated than that, and God knows that, which is why he gave us books like Job. Why is the book of Job so long? Listen to what one pastor says. The Bible's message on suffering cannot be condensed to a text or a tweet. There is no recipe for it. Add a spoonful of Job plus boiling water and you'll, you'll get the answer. No. Listen. Job is a slow-paced, 42-chapter journey because that's what suffering is. Job is a slow-paced, 42-chapter journey because that's what suffering is. When I'm suffering, I don't know about you, but when I'm suffering, when I'm really going through something difficult, I don't want you, I don't want you to give me a quote from the magnet on your fridge. I need you to sit with me, right? This is going to take a minute. Suffering is a long and complicated process that may not heal fully on this side, and God knows that. So he gave us books like Job that are long and complicated and dense. Why is it like that? Have you ever had suffering that was not like that? One of the beauties of the book of Job, I think, is that it actually gets more beautiful to those who are suffering more deeply. Someone who's, and, and it's okay if you're not suffering, like that's okay, but if you're, if you're not suffering, you might look at the book of Job and think, I'm, I'm not going in there, are you kidding me? Look at this thing, I'm not doing that. But to someone who is suffering, they might look at the book of Job and say, finally, someone who doesn't expect me to be okay as soon as the funeral's over. Someone who doesn't expect me to bounce back. Because life doesn't work like that, and God knows that. So he gives us books like Job. My wife and I just closed on our house almost exactly a month ago, and while it was being built, we were out there like every other day, like very creepy and annoying, like every other day we were out there watching this thing, looking at walls go up and just planning, you know, all that good stuff. And since it's a construction site, we, there, there were loose bricks kind of on the ground everywhere, and we were walking out there with our seven-year-old nephew, Hudson, who, who found one of these bricks on the ground. You know, he's seven, so we thought it was like the coolest thing ever. Um, and, and he said, he picks this brick up and he, and he says, man, this brick is so heavy. And without really thinking about it, I said, well, bricks are heavy so that when storms come, your house doesn't fall down. The brick has to be heavy so that it can protect you. And immediately I thought, that's what the book of Job is. 
You see, some, one pastor said, some truths in the Bible are like pillows. And they're good. I love a good pillow. You need pillows to rest in and, and relax in and take comfort in. But some truths in the Bible are like tire irons or crowbars. They're heavy to carry around, and you think, what is this doing in my backpack? Why is this here? Well, because if you have a flat tire on the side of 75 at 2 a.m., you don't need a pillow. You need something that will hold you up and get you through this. That's what the book of Job is. So we're going to look at Job. We're going to look at God. We're going to look at Job's wife. And all throughout, we're going to talk about Jesus. So Job chapter 1, fitting place to start. Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. We'll come back to that. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. Verse 3. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So kind of setting the scene here, Job is introduced as a blameless and upright man who fears God. And that's very important. We're going to come back to that. He also has seven sons and three daughters. Now you may or may not know, in the Bible, the number seven expresses completion or perfection. Seven days of creation, right? Completion or perfection. But the Old Testament the number 10 also does the same thing, completion and perfection. And Job has seven sons and 10 total children. It's kind of this double perfect. He has the perfect family life. He's also wealthy. I don't know if you caught it, 7,000 of these and 3,000 of these. For, so there's the seven again, there's the 10 again, over and over. The number of possessions are perfect. He's just, he's doing great. And again, he honors God. Fearing God, turning away from evil. That's Job. Meanwhile, verses 6 through 12. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Verse 9, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out 
from the presence of the Lord. So meanwhile, God is kind of holding his cabinet meeting in heaven, and Satan is allowed to enter it. And God, if you notice this, God, not Satan, God mentions Job and brings Job center stage as a servant who loves him. And Satan thinks it's just because God has given Job all this stuff. Of course he loves you. I'd love you too. You're not his God. You're his rich dad. You're giving him all the good toys. Of course he loves you. Look at everything you've given him. And God gives Satan permission to take it then. So Satan does. Job 1, 13 to 22. And this is meant to be read kind of quickly, and you'll see why as the servants start talking. So um, it's okay. There's not going to be a quiz. Just kind of hang with me. 13 through the end of the chapter. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down their servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they're dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So Job loses everything, right? His possessions, his family. Later in chapter 2, we'll see his health and the companionship of his wife. And he still worships God, even in heartbreak. Several things we can pull from this. Number one, suffering doesn't mean you're not a Christian. Number one, suffering doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It doesn't mean God has abandoned you or that he's forgotten. Job is called blameless and upright several times in this chapter, both in the story and by God himself, and he still suffers. Too often, for lack of a better word, garbage is preached from pulpits, so-called pulpits, that God is going to make you healthy and wealthy. You know the only person who thinks like that, according to this text? Satan. So it's not just false doctrine to believe that, it is satanic. The Bible, now listen, the Bible is real and honest about suffering, so we should be too. Now, not to everyone we see, just unloading on everybody we see, but listen, when we show kind of this fake veneer Christianity where everything is happy all the time, we not only alienate a world that is hurting, but we alienate fellow Christians who are hurting too. 
well, they're a Christian and they're happy all the time. Maybe I'm not doing this right. Job reminds us that pain is part of an honest Christian life. Remember, the wisdom literature teaches us this world is broken, meaning we will encounter this brokenness, and that's okay. Here's the other thing, though. We also need to be very, very careful when we witness to people and we say the reason they're unhappy is because they're not a Christian. The reason you're sad all the time is because you're not a Christian. Become a Christian and you won't be sad anymore. You see how that can get dangerous. Because it claims that Christianity does something that the Bible nowhere says it does. Now, listen, does Jesus add a joy to our life? Yes, he does. Does he provide a foundation for us to stand on in suffering? Yes, he does. But you and I both know that even though you become a Christian, life is still very hard. And the book of Job is helpful because it reminds us that suffering is a part of the Christian life too. And that's okay. And hopefully it'll help us be closer to our brothers and sisters when they suffer, whether they're Christian or not. That may be the very thing that shows them Jesus for the first time in their life. So the first thing is, just because you're suffering, that doesn't mean you're not a Christian. Suffering is part of the Christian life, which leads to number two. God is in total control throughout our suffering. Notice in Job chapter 1, verse 8, and the Lord said to Satan. I don't know if you notice in this entire chapter, Satan does not speak unless he is spoken to first by God. There is no competition here. It is very clear, like read the room, right? It is very clear in that room who is in control of this situation. And God gives Satan limits in Job's suffering. And Satan does not cross them. Look at Job chapter 1, verse 12. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand only against him. Do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Satan doesn't afflict Job personally until chapter 2 in the second round of this. And in chapter 2, verse 6, chapter 2, verse 6, it says, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. Look at how specific that is. You can go after his health, but spare his life. Exact measured limits. Now listen, Satan is the one performing this evil. Of that there is no doubt. But no evil, the book of Job, chapters 1 and 2 are crucial because they show us no evil is ever able to break out of God's hand. No evil is ever able to break out of God's hand control. Charles Spurgeon was a pastor in the 1800s who suffered from depression, uh, vicious cases of gout in his bones, and his wife had serious medical issues her whole life, and he was asked about his suffering, and he said this. Now think about this. No evil can break out of God's hand. It would be a very difficult experience for me to think that I have an affliction that God didn't send me. That the bitter cup I drink wasn't filled by God's hand. That my trials were never measured out by Him, nor sent to me by His perfect plan. 
The suffering that Spurgeon experienced was awful. And he's saying, as long as I know that God is in control while I go through this suffering, the anchor of my life can hold. The point of the book of Job is never to minimize our suffering, but it is to stabilize our anchor. There's a song by the band Switchfoot called The Shadow Proves the Sunshine. Now think about this. A shadow is the absence of light, right? A shadow is darkness. A shadow is the absence of light. But think about it. For a shadow to exist, what has to be at the back of it? Light. A shadow only ever exists because of the light behind it. The shadow, now, now, this is where you have to make room for this. This takes time. I don't expect you to got it and just leave. This take, this, you got to work this in because shadows are dark, man. But that doesn't negate the truth that at the back of them all is a light. One of the things Job is showing us with God being in control here is that when we get into our hospital bed and it feels like our sickness is running the show, it's not the chaos flooding into your family seems to be in control, but before it got to you, it was sifted by the hands of God, and we have to remember that his hands have nail scars in them. They're not cold, calculating hands. These are loving hands that already have holes in them. No evil can get to you first until it passes through the love of God. This past year, I'm sure you've heard of the atrocities being committed by the Taliban in Afghanistan, and particularly against Afghan Christians. One pastor in Afghanistan encouraged his congregation, now listen to this, the Taliban is running rampant. No one is safe. What do you, what do you say? One pastor in Afghanistan encouraged his congregation by quoting Jeremiah 27, 6. In that verse... Israel is being taken over by Babylon. God's people are being taken over by an evil group, evil, hateful Babylon, led by one of the most evil kings ever, Nebuchadnezzar. But in Jeremiah 27, 6, God calls King Nebuchadnezzar my servant. Really? How is he a servant? He doesn't obey God. No, he doesn't. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't care about God at all. But even the evil of Nebuchadnezzar and what he does, it is in the loving hand of God. Let me show you what I mean. See, when Babylon took over, they split up the Jewish people and threw them into exile and spread them all over the world, separating them so that they can't come together and revolt. Well, what does this do? This allows every Jewish person safe passage all over the world wherever they wanted or wherever they were exiled because Babylon runs the show. And when Christianity generations later begins to spread in the book of Acts, the most receptive people to its message were Gentiles spread throughout the world who already knew a little bit about God, like Cornelius like the Ethiopian eunuch who was reading from the Old Testament. Where do you think he got a copy of that? Jews who were exiled generations before had spread the word of God to places it never would have gotten. How? Through the evil of Nebuchadnezzar. 
And the evil that he committed was in the loving hand of God, Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. The Afghan pastor talked about this. This guy's in Afghanistan. And he talks about this and he says, even though they want nothing to do with God, God is calling the Taliban my servant. They cannot help but forward his plans. Our God does not work apart from suffering. He works in it. Number three, Job is being punished as if he has sinned. Now, this is huge. It's not random. Job is being punished as if he has sinned. Remember, early in the book of Job and throughout chapter 1, Job is introduced to us as blameless. Now, that doesn't mean perfect. It means he's genuine. What you see is what you get. There's no hidden agenda. Job has no secret sin. He's not at the casino on the weekends, right? Job has no secret sin. He's doing the best he can to love God as honestly as he can. When he messes up, he apologizes. But here's the thing. Deuteronomy chapter 28 lists the punishments given out by God in the Old Testament for when his people sin. Listen to some of these punishments for sin and think about what happened to Job. Deuteronomy 28, 16 to 18. You will be cursed. Your children will be cursed. And the crops of your land and the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. Think about Job's children and his land. Verse 51. I will leave you no calves for your herds or lambs for your flocks until you are ruined. Job's livestock. Deuteronomy 28, 20. The Lord will send on you curses until you are destroyed and come to sudden ruin. You remember how fast all that happens to Job? Because of the evil you have done. You may remember in Job chapter 2, Job is afflicted with boils the second time around. And he scratches himself with this broken pottery. And it just seems kind of random. Why boils? Why, well, how specific? Deuteronomy 28, 27, same chapter. The Lord will afflict you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors, festering sores and scratching. Same word in Hebrew. From which you cannot be cured. This is important because this is the point of the book. Now think about this. Job is blameless upright. God said so. Yet he is punished as if he is evil. Who else in the Bible do we know like that? Job is foreshadowing a carpenter from Nazareth whose cross is hanging up on the wall behind me. Look at Job's wife. Chapter 2, verse 9. Look at Job's wife. Her one, her one line. Then Job's wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Now, first of all, let's give this woman a break. She's just lost 10 kids as well. But two things from Job's wife. One, spouses. When your spouse is suffering, your theology matters. When your spouse is suffering, what you think about God matters. 
I remember when I was playing basketball in eighth grade, I dislocated my knee, and obviously I couldn't get up off the, the floor, and so my dad and the head coach had to carry me to the van. Now that's physical suffering, but sometimes with physical or spiritual suffering, it can be so white hot and blinding that we can't do anything, that we, that we can't find joy in anything. And that's when we've got to have godly people around us reminding us, pouring into our emptiness, right? Reminding us by their words and their actions about the God that we can't see right now. Spouses, your theology matters for the sake of your spouse. But secondly, Job has gone from basically a king to a homeless man almost instantly. His body is afflicted and now his closest friend has abandoned him. Who in the New Testament does this happen to? Who in the New Testament is not just blameless, but perfect? And he willingly loses everything and is abandoned by those closest to him. Job's three friends are horrible to him in his time of need. Who in the New Testament has three friends who fall asleep on him in his most dire hour? God is using Job to point us to another, like the whole Testament. And here's what will really blow your mind if you think about it too long. Remember, God allowed Satan to do this. Satan thought he was getting the best deal ever. But by allowing him to punish an innocent man, God is using Satan to point to the one person Satan does not want to point to, Jesus Christ. Have you ever looked at an old photo album and thought, what was I wearing, right? Like, what was I, are you kidding me? Like, what, take this off Facebook, what was I thinking, right? Can you not picture Satan, who now has the whole story of the Bible, looking at what he did to Job, so proud at the time of his work, and the evil he brought on Job, now realizing that all he was doing was making the story of Jesus that much clearer, God was just allowing Satan to build his own coffin. God allows an innocent man to suffer for sins he did not commit. Because if innocent suffering doesn't exist, then your sins and mine can never be paid for. Our punishment cannot be put on someone else. That's why Job's friends don't get it. 27 straight chapters, they say, Job, tell us the sin you did to deserve this punishment. I didn't, I didn't do this. Job, look at yourself. It's clear you're being punished for sins, you can just tell us what you did. And Job, over and over and over, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. And more and more throughout the cycles of speeches, Job gets more and more bold and his friends get nastier and nastier and nastier because they know he's right. God is using Job to show the world. See, the friends have this system, like we all do. We're not so different. The friends have this system that this is the way the world works. 
which is ironic because they're smack dab in the middle of the wisdom literature, which shows it's not that cut and dry. God is using Job to show the world that another way is coming, a way in which a carpenter from Israel who is innocent of all sin will be punished as if he has committed every sin. See, God understood Job's suffering even deeper than Job did because one day that same suffering would be magnified onto his son. God understands your suffering and mine, but there's more than that. God sent Jesus Christ to ensure not just that he understood our own suffering, but to guarantee that it would one day end. And just like Job now sees how his suffering is a part of God's story, because of Jesus Christ, one day we will all see how our suffering was a part of God's bigger plan of redemption. Let's pray together.